The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Uh, let's see, St- David. You got your uh, you got you got the notum. You actually got a real no tams here. You got yeah, man. Notum, yeah. I haven't gotten mine yet. I I'm it's not, like a. I didn't request a real one. I but I, I look at the one on the PDF. So what's what is it? Is it cool? Is it like colorful and nice and? Did, it is. It is a, an amazing array of shades of gray, <laughs> and uh, no, a real. But isn't it in color? Isn't some of it color? Not a bit. Really? I thought it was. Yeah, the PDF the PDF is. Oh. Oh, oh I get I, it. I didn't realize they, that. They, okay. they couldn't come up with the squeeze. But to, to, to save money on, on the uh, on the book. And I, I, I you know, color yeah, isn't no. really going to. They definitely print a couple of those, so I can understand them. Yeah, man. Save, save some money. And this, this puppy had uh, 76 cents worth of postage. And I'm betting that that's at some kind of uh, group discount, yeah. given their uh, EAA Aviation Center. And uh, it's, I don't know. Oh, it was mailed by EAA? You got it from EAA, not FAA? It came from the EAA Aviation Center. I asked for it on their website the very week that the uh, uh, site opened up to request uh, a hard copy mailed to you. Yep. And because uh, I like to keep them one year to the next and yeah. look at the changes, and the changes are, you know, actually pretty. Uh, yeah. So what did you learn? Few you and far between this year. Have you learned oh, anything yeah. new? What'd you learn? Well, let's say the changes for 2008 include new landing dots on runway 36. Ah, yes. Okay. okay. For anybody that hasn't been there, they put colored dots on the runways: one eight three six left and right nine two seven. And uh, the the uh, final controller that you talk to, that, that I'm sorry, you don't talk to. The final controller you listen to as you're transiting the arrival from uh, uh, Ripon will tell you to land on a certain colored dot, right? Or land short of a dot, or long of a dot, and uh, and then which way you're going to taxi, and you do that, you know, m- mocho quick, ricky tick. Past you, you hit the spot, you turn off whichever way. So do this not could be stop runway on dots. the runway. Do flag. not stop. Do not contact ground. And you can read all about how to do that here. Not stop and. Yep. There's uh, going to be new controllers. The the controllers. I'm sorry, as as Jack pointed out, I believe last week, controllers will be working from the new control tower. Yeah. The old control tower will, I believe, still be standing. Uh, that may not be true next year. So, if you ever wanted to get your picture taken in front of the old tower, uh, now's the, the year time. To do it. Yep. And if you work it right, you can probably get a picture that shows you with the old tower and the new tower, all in the same shot. So, Milwaukee Approach will be handling the airspace above Oshkosh, not Chicago Center. Yep. Uh, that realignment came just a few months ago, if I remember correctly. Uh, and there was some debate within the controller community about uh, the wisdom of that, but that's the way it is. And the uh, Volk Field MOAs, uh, they're going to have additional Volk Field MOAs active. Where's that in relation I, to Oshkosh? Uh, I did not look, but I believe it's the south, It's southwest of Oshkosh. 
Let's see. Don't hold me to that. Okay. Without me looking. All right. Or Jeb looking. Because yeah, I think he's going to find it quicker than I am. Mine's not downloaded completely yeah. yet, so it, the bottom pages are okay. kind of funky. But so, yeah, yeah, so there are some, I know there's a I know there's a MOA out there southwest because uh, yeah, well, we've got uh, end up sidestepping it when you come yeah. up IFR. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Because it's almost always hot. Um, oh, yeah, here we are on page three. Oh, well, that's our traffic near Volk Field. Avoid Volk Class Delta Airspace. Where is Volk Field? Here we are. It is we don't even know. Due west of the Oshkosh VOR. Due west. Well, sure. Yeah, Oregon is due west of the Oshkosh VOR. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, how much due west? There's there's a VOR here. Uh, Quite a ways. Yeah, okay. But a lot of people ways, come I'm, from I'm the west. I'm going to say 60, 80 miles. I don't have a oh, scale okay. here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's the, because that's, this map is said not for navigation, just yeah. for reference. So yeah. as we, 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 we're going we're gonna to beat this to death because it's really important, but uh, whether or not you get one in the mail or whether you get the PDF and print it out, if you fly into Oshkosh, have a printed paper copy in the airplane with you. And, uh, you know, have read it in advance, but have it available for uh, for. For uh, yeah, there, know, there won't be reference. a test unless you s- screw up and fail, and, and uh, you know, and they I, ask you, know, you in the post after briefing. Uh, so, did you have the note, Tam? And you kind of go, "Well, yeah, it's in my luggage." Uh, yeah. We'll talk about you after the fact. Yeah, that's right. yeah. and the, and the note, and, and even if you're talk about you. yeah, that's right. And even if the notum isn't, even if you aren't flying in, uh, the notum is fun to check out because it helps you begin fantasizing about going to Oshkosh again this summer. Which is cool. That's right. Yeah. By the way, one of the things I like about the colored dots on the runway is uh, they are, are a great aid for landing, obviously, um, but and for spacing out the landings. But if you're if you're standing by the runways watching the arrivals, you can actually see the dots as a, as an airplane kind of passes over it, either either on the ground or just off the ground. You can actually the the bottom of the airplane will actually blossom whatever color because they're fluorescent colors like orange and green and red and whatnot. And a white airplane suddenly the bottom of the airplane will suddenly turn for just a split second will turn bright orange as it passes over the dot. Now, I always think that's kind of cool. Uh, Dave, you, page, should try, you should try and catch page. that as a picture, Dave. You should catch it just as it as it's bright orange. Dave, you, you, actually, you should go out and get one of each dot. You know, uh, we have done crazier things on that feed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Years past. But, uh, yeah, I got a shot of uh, uh, the lady air show pilot flies the, uh, the mentor. Uh, um, Julie, Julie Clark. Julie Clark, thank you. Uh, All together now. Two, three years ago, her airplane was right over, I believe it's the orange dot on 36. Uh huh. 1836. And the, the, the color is reflected up on the belly of her very shiny, polished uh, uh, beach mentor. Uh, it's re- really dramatic, and it's just an absolute dumb luck of timing of the shutter. Because uh, I just had the, the thing on full motor drive and going uh-huh. wide open. It was just clicking where it came. That's like catching those uh, shockwave vapor things on the fighter jets when they do the hard pulls, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a luck thing, it, too, right? It, it Well, it is the first time. If you get to watch them do the same routine, that's, uh, if you get to really watch them do a routine one day, uh-huh. 
concentrate less on trying to photograph it. You don't that you don't have to be up on the flight line for this. Uh, concentrate on and kind of getting down the routine that they do, the order that they do it in, and you can find marks there where you can anticipate the pull-ups and the breaks right. that generate the change in direction that makes those little uh, vapors appear. Yeah, and then you can kind of shoot for them. But catching them at, at, at optimum is really kind of, uh, to me at, at any rate, you, you you get the timing down, you try your best, but after that, is, if the shutter clicks at exactly the wrong time, even at three or four frames a second, you can miss it. Yeah. Well, so just for, for anybody who's uh, in, in, in any doubt of what they've wandered into here, let me say welcome, folks, to episode number 83 <laughs> of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Thursday evening, May twenty second, 2008. And uh, let me say hi to the gang here in the virtual hangar. Uh, one of those voices out there is Jeb Burnside. Jeb's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Hey, Jack. I'm fine. Uh, hot and muggy down here. No kidding. Yeah, hot and muggy in Florida? Who would have thought? No, 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 no. The mugginess, it's, it's, it's just there's this air mass that's settled in. There's low clouds, and it's, it's just you can cut it with a knife, and there's no did breeze. The, did the presidential campaign come back to Florida? There, yeah, well, there's that, too. Uh, and it's just been unpleasant down here uh-huh. for the last couple of days. Okay. But uh, otherwise, uh, we're doing fine. I hope everybody – you're still in Philly, so I guess you're, you're doing okay. And yeah. I hope – Everybody else is doing well. That's right. That's right. And uh, I spent a week there one day. <laughs> and that voice, <laughs> and that voice is uh, W.C. Field. No, that's uh, Dave Higdon. Uh, Dave is uh, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Doing good and experiencing, you know, what's creeping up on being borderline uncomfortably hot and humid here. Yeah. Yeah, and, about 84 today and about 90% humidity. And... Uh, we're expecting some widely scattered boomers this evening, and I'm hoping it actually lasts long enough if we get one to cool the streets down so it doesn't just re-vaporize the moisture five minutes later. That's what happens in Florida all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a cold front stalled out north of here, which is the problem. And uh, I'm going to, I think, if this doesn't clear up by Sunday, I'm going to just kind of go up there and give it a push. Yeah, well, maybe you can explain Good to idea. me. I'm Jack Hodgson, and uh, normally from Boston, Massachusetts, but uh, finally at the reaching the tail end of my trip to Philadelphia here and uh, heading home tomorrow. But uh, On assignment in Philly. That's right. And it has not been hot and humid here, um, although we've had a couple of nice days. It's basically rained every day here. Uh, really? Yeah. Okay. The first few days it was like system rain. It was like rainy all day long. And then we've had like rain squalls and little thunderstorms for the last couple of afternoons. As a matter of fact, just a minute ago I looked out the window... Uh, um, in in a hotel here, uh, just north of Philly, and uh, and it was suddenly raining like diagonally, and now I'm looking out and the sun's coming back out. So clearly a little squall thing passed through here, but uh, it's really been a baby storm changing its diaper. It's been the last couple of days. It's been you know occasionally nice, but occasionally really kind of gusty and gray and chilly, and the temperature changes dramatically, and that actually is an issue in a story I want to talk about a little bit later on. Um, but yeah. uh, but. Uh, Finishing up my trip to Philadelphia, I had a good time, but, I, but I'm really ready to go home because I've been here long enough and uh, uh, get to go home for the Memorial Day weekend to go up to my family's summer home and visit with my brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and parents and uh, go kayaking. It's going to be good. Looking forward to it. Sounds like fun. Looking it does forward sound to like it. fun. 
So what's in the news here? Um, I, you know, I, this is just a little tidbit here, but did you see this video of the, of course, in the news over the last month or so was this uh, controversial uh, uh, fighter jet intercept of a couple of private aircraft uh, over in, where was it? Someplace in the Midwest, or the, out in the West. Air, air. Yeah, Arizona. Arizona. Um, and now there's on YouTube um, a, a short video, uh, apparently from the uh, cabin of a small aircraft, of a, uh, I don't know if it's, a, I, should, I should know better, but it's, it's an Italian or a French, this is in Europe, um, an aircraft that apparently busted some sort of little controlled airspace and the fighters went up to see them and uh, and made a you know we were talking about 20 feet versus 600 feet well this was 20 feet or this was like <laughs> this was this was not 600 feet this was you know 30 or 40 at most um, and uh, this guy came right up on the uh, the rear quarter of this aircraft and he got a great piece of video of it you can almost make out the expression on the fighter pilot's face and ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, and you know and that's it, always troubled me here is the uh yeah, somebody will answer that. Hold on. Get it uh. quick, Danny. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. We can barely I'll hear it. Go up. ahead. I was just thinking, you know, the, uh, the 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 little brouhaha over the guy's judgment on how close the airplane was, and uh, you know, I I often can't tell if something's forty feet or fifty feet tall, but I generally know the wingspan of what I'm flying. Yeah. Yeah. And if wingspan, half a wingspan is like 20 feet, I got a pretty good frame of reference for what 20 feet is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not like flying a helicopter. Yeah, it's kind of like, it was it within a wingspan? Yeah. It was within a wingspan. You know, that's a lot closer than we talked about. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about that? That's way closer than we talked about. We talked about We didn't talk about wingspan, but we talked about this whole episode. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking of that my conversation with the guy out there. Yeah. Why are you here? Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, it was, yeah. this was in Italy. Yeah. I don't know. Let me find the story here. Um, look at that. Uh, where is it here? I found it. I also, while we're talking, I added an, uh, an item. Okay. Um, but. Uh, um, oh, you mean refresh? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I don't know. There's not much. It's a, it's took place in, in, uh, in Europe and, uh, you know, it is what it is, but, uh, it's just kind of an interesting illustration of what it may have looked like from the cabin, excuse me, of, uh, of the, uh, two aircraft here in the United States. And, uh, you know, these things do happen, you know, by the way, there were two, if you watch the video to the tail end, um, he actually had a buddy who was nearby and the, the two of them peeled off together. Is that a Harrier? What is that? It looks like. You know, a is it a Harrier or is it some sort yeah. of odd European design that's sort of like a Harrier but not? Well, the Harrier originally was an yeah, odd the, the, the Harrier is an odd European design. Oh, but, okay, but uh, that's not. What I, mean. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of some odd Italian design. You know, yeah, you can yeah. see the. You can see the. Uh, yeah, that's a Harrier. You look at that airplane and instantly go, "Wow, function really dictates." And what kind of what kind of bird are we taking this from? Looks like a bonanza. It does. Yeah. So, anyways, interesting. Thing. Up. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, to the YouTube video. Woohoo! Um, yeah, that's that, that's lie, not baby. twenty feet, but it's it's, it's not six hundred either. That's that's two hundred feet. You think that's two hundred feet? I don't know. I'll go back and look at it again. Let me see. It looks closer than two hundred. Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah, the yeah. That's uh, that's not twenty feet, but it's. Uh, 
Not uh, 600 either. It's not. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> maybe 50 max. Yeah. Um, Excuse but, me. I knew guys in high school that thought three inches was 10, but... I'm not going like anywhere that. close to <laughs> no, that. I'm not going anywhere close to that either. I, you know, when I was in high school, we didn't have those issues. So, uh, yeah, right. okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, let's see now. What else here? So here's My a story from. Uh, here's an item I found in the uh, in the uh, one of my new favorite blogs. Uh, it, a lot of the aviation publications are getting into the blogging thing now, which I really think is cool. Um, yeah. Lots of little, uh, we've been talking about the Kit Planes blog. Now AOPA Pilot has got a blog that they're updating on a regular, pretty regular basis. Lots of interesting little tidbits that may or may not make it into the uh, the, the big magazine, but uh, it's fun to go there and see what the latest stuff's going on. And uh, let's see now, associate editor Stephen Ellis uh, f- uh, posts this oh, blog oh, entry. Oh, buddy Steve. Oh, you guys yeah. know Steve, Ellis, huh? Not Ellis. Is it L's? I'm sorry. I can, L, Steve L. Couldn't yes. quite make out the little type here, but uh, great, great uh, guy has an entry called "Papa and I are gaining weight," and uh, <laughs> he uh, he goes into the fact that uh, he had occasion to actually weigh his uh, Comanche, um, which he hadn't done in some time, <laughs> and uh, you know he's apparently put a refrigerator in his airplane too because. Really? Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, it's gained weight over the years as you add gear and add whatnot, and uh, you know what do you think about this? I mean. I I mean, I, I don't have never owned an airplane, but I guess it's smart to weigh your airplane every well, now and then. Yes and no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've had this talk with we've our had this IA. With, you know, and, yeah, and, okay. What are the pros and cons? Well, the pros are that, yeah, you actually know how much it weighs. Yeah. Uh, the cons are you know how much it weighs. <laughs> <laughs> um, typically, typically. Uh, an older aircraft, and let's let's just pick a certain 1966 vintage debonair that we all know about. Yeah. Uh, typically, over time, an aircraft will gain weight, and it's not so much a matter of installed equipment as it is just dirt and grease oh, okay. and, and detritus that accumulates um, in the belly or uh, uh, elsewhere in the airframe, and some of that's hard to get out. Some of it, uh, you, you know. Uh, is is nearly impossible to get out, um, but even more so, it accumulates old wiring, and uh, you know uh, uh, the odd you know handful of connectors that somehow get lost uh, in the belly of the airplane. Um, a lot of equipment, when it is legally added to the airplane, and paperwork is done, um, there's no requirement for. <clears throat> Uh, the airplane to be weighed after that equipment is added, and you know how much the equipment weighs when it goes in, but somehow, you know, things like connectors and, and a couple of extra pieces of wire get left out of the computation, and all of this adds up over time. Or you I take have, out a piece of equipment, yeah. but don't take something out of the panel, but mm-hmm. don't necessarily take out the associated hardware. Right. So then when you put some new piece of equipment in the panel in place of it, uh, you haven't gained the benefit of the old system you removed completely, just that part that came out of the panel. Next, And some guys will mistakenly look at the weight of the whole system and say, oh, wow, that's you know 13 pounds, not realizing they only took five out. Right, exactly, exactly. But, and, and they might take out 
um, you know, they might refer back, say, to, you know, 30 years ago when that 40-pound autopilot was added and it's been removed. So they subtract the 40 pounds, not thinking that all the wiring and, and maybe even a few of the, you know, servos or some other kinds of components that were part of that still are in the airplane, and they subtract the whole 40 pounds when they might really only be taking out 35 pounds. The the punchline in all of this is um, over time, airplanes gain weight, and the paperwork doesn't necessarily keep up with the actual weight of the airplane. There's another solution. Yeah. Airplane treadmills. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, um, All right. So so uh, they can gain weight. Swim fast for airplanes. Do we care? Um, Yeah, well, we do and we don't, okay? We care because it affects performance. Uh, The heavier the airplane, you know, you put two uh, 260 Comanches next to each other, and the heavier one is going to be slower, it's going to take more runway, it's going to climb more slowly, it's going to use more fuel. Um, And it's going to be slower in cruise. Uh, You take uh, uh, two Bonanzas, same vintage, same thing's true there, too. So, yes, it affects performance. It affects the utility of the airplane. Uh, obviously, with the paperwork, it affects um, the uh, useful load of the airplane, how much you can legally carry. Now, here's the, here's the crux of the biscuit. Um, if I were to go out and weigh my airplane, which I'm not required to do, but in, in all the paperwork's in order, it says, paperwork says the airplane weighs 2,200 and change empty which is a fairly heavy airplane for uh, that particular vintage. It's got a lot of junk in it. Um, but I would, if I weighed it, it would probably come in around 2275. I would probably pick up 60 or 70 pounds. Uh-huh. Um, I don't necessarily want to do that. Yeah. Okay. Now, is 60 or 70 pounds... Um, do, uh, first of all, do I legally positively know that the airplane weighs 60 or 70 pounds heavier? No, I do not know that. Here's the paperwork. This is what the airplane weighs. Everything's copacetic. Thank you, Mr. FAA. Go away. Leave Everything me alone. Everything is done according to spec. Exactly. exactly. And that's the legal numbers you have to exactly work with. Exactly right. But now, I, I know intellectually that it probably weighs you know, some number of pounds heavier than that, which affects performance which affects, um, um, you know, legally how much I could carry. Now, if I knew legally that it weighed another 75 pounds, that would be 75 pounds off my useful load. Now, here's, here's where it gets interesting, okay? Um, yeah, if you look at um, the weight and balance and you look at the, the legality of, of going over gross and everything, no, you're not supposed to do that. But I don't know for legal fact right. that the aircraft weighs more than it does, Okay. Well, so I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I'm, you know, I'm comfortable with, um, you know, I'm, I rarely get even close to gross weight on the airplane. I'm, I'm comfortable knowing that um, if, even if I load it to gross uh, on paper while I'm legal, uh, even if it's a couple of pounds over, I ain't going to sweat it because we're talking in percentages. We're talking nil. We're talking maybe half of a percent. And it's not going to affect performance. This is in no way an endorsement of flying. In no way an endorsement. But it bears remembering that the gross weight on uh, these airplanes, particularly Car 3 airplanes, and I think it's still that way on Floor 23, but uh, I haven't checked recently. So 
I'll stick with what I understand to be true, and that is that gross weight was predicated largely on a rejected landing climb gradient. Well, gross weight. It, it, the structure it, it works into it, but here's oh, my example. Mr. Cotter, Mr. Cotter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flew a Comanche 180 for several years. Well, let's let him finish that. his thought so we can I, really I stick know. it to him. All right. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Go ahead, Dave. Flew a Comanche 180 for many years. You guys know that. Yep. Uh, the same years that Piper built the Comanche 180, it built a 250. The difference between the 250 and the 180 existed solely from the firewall forward. Yeah. Different engine mount, different engine, the associated right. accessories and, and, and hookups for things like gauges and gauge markings and such. But that was it. That was it. From the firewall, including the firewall aft, every other piece of the airplane was the same, whether it was a 250 or a 180. They came down the line together. And it was where the engine went on that determined which model it became. Mm-hmm. This is what the Piper guys told okay. me a long time ago. Yeah. There's a considerable difference in gross weight on those airplanes. Yeah. yeah. Structurally, there's no difference in those airplanes. That's right. Well, and the uh, the uh, the gross weight is due solely to the higher horsepower, and the and the G rating, a load rating of the airplanes is identical. So I always knew that my 180 could take the loading of gross weight of mm-hmm. a 250 with a great margin because that loading on the 250 had a margin built into it. Mm-hmm. And I was never going to be that heavy. That's right. I was never going to be that heavy. Uh, as far as I was concerned, that 180 was de facto unbreakable. Mm-hmm. So... If by accident, like on a trip where I was overloaded, and the line boy put in five gallons more than I asked for, you know, it's not filling the tanks because I want to stay below maximum gross takeoff weight. Right. Uh, so if I wind up, let's see, what's five gallons? About thirty pounds. Yeah, I was going to say a little, little less than thirty pounds, and uh, I'm not going to sweat that in terms of hurting the airplane. Yeah. Because by the time I get down the road, uh, 20 minutes out and then cruise climb, that 30 pounds is gone away. All right. Okay, exactly Horshack, right. you got anything to add to that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> gross weight is based on a lot of different factors. The one Dave pointed out is, is just one of them. The the ability of the engine to cool itself, for example, in a, in a max performance climb, and max performance worst case scenario climb, the the, the full power gross weight climb, uh, basically in, a, in kind of an abuse situation, the air, the airplane engine has to has to cool itself. Uh, I I don't in in car three aircraft there might be a uh, a minimum uh, rate of climb in, in that. Uh, uh, in that certification standard, but more importantly, of course, is the uh, uh, the gust envelope and the structural strength of the airplane. And um, um, you don't want to fly over gross knowingly because not only will you over can you overstress the airplane, but it's just simply not going to perform per the book. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's definitely not going to perform up to what it does if you stick within the numbers. Yeah. Uh, but there's other examples out here where this premise is, you know, my, my contention that the big kahuna in this is this rejected 
landing climb gradient is the number of uh, of airplanes for which an STC to a different engine or a different prop to get more power out of the old engine will result in a gross weight increase. Rejected yeah. landing climb gradient. Can you put that in plain yeah. English for, like, me? <laughs> you get down to 100 feet and some guy taxis out in front of you and you say, oh, my God, I don't want to pull a Stinson. And you <laughs> firewall it. You yeah, firewall okay. it and you climb out. And oh, the, the hook being that by yeah, yeah, some yeah. miracle, by some miracle of physics, you're still at maximum gross takeoff weight. You know, okay, you took off, you did a max performance turnaround, you came back to land, you're on final. You've got to be able to hit a, a minimum climb gradient for the FAA standards. And as you raise the weight, that climb gradient, that performance decreases. As Jeb said, you don't climb as well. Right. So part of the, you know, one of the big hooks in setting gross weight is how well you climb at gross weight on a rejected landing. I see. And uh, they want you to be able to get out of your own way. Yeah. yeah. It's assumed that at the end of most long cross-country trips, you're going to be able to do a rejected landing pretty nimbly because you're going to be several hours into your fuel supply. Right. The airplane's going to be a lot lighter. Uh, and my, my guy, the leprechaun, gave me the same advice when we were bringing the Comanche out of a major repair. Said, well, we'd taken a lot of stuff out. We'd put a lot of new stuff in. Uh, we'd been weighing everything judiciously, diligently recording what we took out, what we put back in, in the place of what we took out. We put acoustic foam insulation in every skin bay of the cabin and then wrap that cabin further in one-inch fiberglass. But what we put in was actually about 30% lighter, the combination, than the old bagged fiberglass that Piper originally put in the airplane. Mm -hmm. Go figure. But then we got rid of the tenth of an inch thick, uh, decades-old cabin glass and put in new acrylic quarter-inch thick tinted. Yep. Definitely several times heavier than what came out. Uh, we put on a three-blade prop in place of a two-blade. But, boy, through the amazing technology of aluminum versus steel hubs, we only picked up five and a half pounds on the prop yep. mm -hmm. going to three blades from two. And then we got rid of a an alternator. And, I'm sorry, a generator and a starter and a voltage regulator and a battery that took 22 pounds out of the airplane. That was the net improvement over what yeah. we put in. At some point, it became necessary for me to weigh the airplane. We weighed the airplane. We actually came out okay. Yeah. <laughs> our, calculation, our calculation showed that we'd actually gained useful load along the way. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it proved to be true. We were off by about five pounds. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, no. We still wound up with the ability to put fuel, full fuel, and uh, what was it? Full fuel and six hundred and thirty-five pounds in the cabin. Mm -hmm. When I got my airplane, it had uh, a couple of boat anchors in the panel, mm -hmm. uh, and um, I didn't do it all at once, but over two trips to the uh, to the avionics shop, 
um, changed out those those radios and and, uh, and for example got rid of a, a full size ADF and its indicator which were two separate uh, components. Yeah. Um, um, changed out a uh, an older uh, well eliminated an older uh, uh, combined Loran GPS and it's two I'm sorry yeah it's uh, two antennas. Um, in the wiring, associated wiring and everything, um, put in an audio panel, put in a Garmin 530, um, assorted other mental miscellaneous changes. That avionics, load there. that avionics work increased my useful load. Yeah, you should have picked okay. up load there. I picked up, you know, maybe 10 pounds. Um, but the, the Just magic... Just getting rid of the ADF is huge. Oh, Yeah. And and the antenna and, and everything else. The magic, though, was when I added the tip tanks, because oh, yeah. well, that gave me the, the tip tanks weighed and installed. I forget. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a wild ass guess out there. I'm gonna say they weigh installed 23 pounds a piece. No, I'm sorry, total. Total. Yeah. Total. They don't weigh 23. Pounds oh, that's that's in, that includes the tanks themselves, the the plumbing. <laughs> Um, to install, to link, to, to uh, um, spit it out, son, spit it yeah. out. Yeah, the plumbing from the tips to the mains and some small um, uh, wobble pumps uh, to transfer the fuel. Um, I gained wobble pump, wobble 225 pump. pounds of gross weight because with those tip tanks comes a gross weight increase. A 250 uh, pounds. A 250-pound gross weight increase. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, so, actual gross weight or allowable gross weight? Well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Here's the only, here's the only fly in that ointment. The last 100 pounds of weight, of total weight of the airplane, has to be fuel in the tip tanks. Oh. Big deal. That means you've still got 130-some-odd pounds to play with. In, in the cabin, yeah. yeah. Now, and the way that works is, A, on the Bonanza, it goes from utility category, which is the normal category, essentially, in which the aircraft is certificated. It goes uh, to utility. To the normal, normal. category. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you have a 4.4 uh, G airframe limit without the tip tanks, and you go down to 3.8 Gs. Uh, with uh, w- uh, with the tip tanks, but also what's going on here is uh, you're spreading out the weight that the airplane wings are are sustaining. It's not all concentrated in the cabin. You're putting oh, some yeah. of it out of the right. tip, uh, at, at both tips. Uh-huh. And you're putting obviously most of it there at the at the wing roots, but you're also putting some of it out there at the tips. Which helps the wing. Um, it's, it's complicated, and I'm not an aircraft engineer, but um, it, it helps the wing spread the load out, huh. and therefore makes the airplane legally and, and safely, and um, um, uh, from an engineering standpoint, able to carry more weight. Oh, so it's a yeah. it's a structural thing, not necessarily it's, a. It's as much a structural thing as, as a it lift is a, thing, as a certification. It's not lift. Yeah, not, right. Although there is a slight in plate effect. Yeah, uh, the, there's the a little bit. Are, yeah, the tip tanks are not designed for that. Yeah, when the uh, that's the, interesting. There's right? another little bit of aerodynamic gain by the fact that it, it l- makes the wings flex a little bit less under exactly. normal load. Right, right. No, I understand because that's of the way the weight's out there. Very interesting. Very uh, interesting. <laughs> your experience, Jeb, with those tips, because uh-huh. I, I remember talking to him before and after, and flown with him before and after. 
And it's funny how much more confident you are for how much crap he and I can carry in the airplane on a trip together yeah. when the well, chips are loaded. It's, it's, the other thing, too, is um, without the tips, and, and this you know, it doesn't work for every airplane. It doesn't work for every, every body. But without the tips, there's, there's five hours of gas, basically, <clears throat> in the airplane. And, um, and that's, that's good. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, five hours uh, is is a good, a good chunk time. of distance in that airplane. Yeah. But five hours, weather can change. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Uh, where you think you you're you cross a couple have, of time zones in yeah, five hours. Where you think you're going to have no trouble at all uh, landing at your destination, the weather can change pr- fairly quickly and fairly substantially. It gives you putting, a lot more options. Putting you behind the the fuel curve uh, yeah. with the additional three hours of gas. Uh, that the tip tanks afford, well, well two and a half. Your experience uh, has made me yeah. a lot more in tune to the idea of uh, of a Comanche. Uh, there were a lot of two fifties in particular fitted with tip tanks. Yeah, and in the earlier two fifties, it took the tip tanks to get it up to reasonable fuel, ninety gallons. Yeah, because the very first year, and I think into part of the second year, they built the two fifty. Uh-huh. Uh, it came with Comanche one eighty fuel supply, which is sixty. And at 30% more fuel per hour, that 60 didn't go very far. Yeah. Right. Uh, but you can find a lot of Comanches out there, old, older ones, and, and a lot older Bonanzas that have got Britain chip tanks on them. And they, they, they not only add fuel, they add payload. That's right. Well, I remember. they have to gross weight. Several years ago, I had, was having a problem with my, uh, my engine analyzer. Um, and uh, talked to the, it was, this was JPI. Uh, talked to the company and they said, "Well, send, you know, send us the the data dump, and we'll try to figure out what's going on with it." So I sent them the sent them a, a couple of data dumps uh, from it and emailed this off to the tech and and uh, you know a day or so later he he emails me back and says, "Oh yeah, okay, this is the problem. This is what you need to do to fix it." Da 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 da. I hope that's responsive. He says, "By the way, dude." What are you flying that you're flying seven hour legs with this? Uh, you know. <laughs> well, and, you know, Jeb used to leave here. He'd drop me off after Oshkosh and nonstop from Wichita oh, yeah. to Manassas, Virginia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And have comfortable fuel when he got there. Oh, have, have all kinds of gas when I got yeah. there. Uh, the, the two trips in question, this guy was asking me about seven hour legs. I was flying Manassas to Houston. Nonstop, uh, oh, flew yeah, out. That's a leg. Flew out westbound. Um, was on the ground there for a couple of days. Turned around and went back um, eastbound. Nonstop. Basically, okay. almost tack time was almost identical for for both trips. That's and, weird. And it totally between between startup, taxi, shut down at the other end, and everything like that. It, it it basically came out to around seven hours for both legs. And uh, the guy's like, "What are you flying, dude?" You know, does it have a body? Uh, this, 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 this reminds me of something that we were chatting about a little bit on the uh, Uncontrolled Airspace Forums. I was catching up a little bit with some old messages there, some old discussion, and it was about the British Airways 777 at Heathrow mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, where, uh, you know, I know it's not GA, but, boy, for a pilot, it's kind of a fascinating, holy mother story. Uh Triple Seven's flying from Beijing nonstop to London Heathrow. It's on file. 
Uh, it's on the Autoland configuration. It's all set up. The computer, the flight management system says you're locked into the ILS. You're coming down into the touchdown zone. Oh, we need a little more power. The engines say, okay, here's a little more power. And then suddenly the engines school down and the airplane wound up a thousand feet short of the paved part of Heathrow. Yeah, we've and they totaled the triple seven. And I was thinking how phenomenal, how phenomenal that they now understand that part of the problem may have been attributable to a low pressure head on the high pressure pumps that feed the turbines. Mm-hmm. And how in the hell would you know that if it wasn't for full authority digital engine controls right. and engine trend monitoring on computer database or computer memory in the engine FADEX and the digital flight deck recorder that's recording almost every bloody thing that's possibly go on with the airplane and you know it's like otherwise it would have been the throttle spooled up and nothing happened yeah we well, don't know why yeah the otherwise, it would have been a matter of uh, the pilot, the crew screwed up. And, and I just read an item earlier this week where the captain of that flight uh, went back to work this week and got like a standing ovation and, and all this kind of thing and, and is, is duly and, and I think quite properly considered uh, to, to have saved several people's lives. I wouldn't call him a hero. I, that's I, that's kind of – I wasn't there, but I don't know that much about the episode. But some other people perhaps are calling him that. Um, and um, basically, the article I was reading, and I'll, we ought to put, find that and put a link to it, but uh, uh, the article is saying that he, because the aircraft was all of a sudden, you know, spooling down and da 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 da, he manipulated the flaps in such a fashion that it stre- helped stretch the glide. Yeah. I think he actually retracted them. Uh, or, or, or partially. Yeah, the, I think it was. I think it was the uh, first officer that was flying the airplane and, and and reacted mm-hmm. pretty adroitly mm-hmm. to the sudden loss of thrust. What was the time involved? It's, what was the duration from the time that the engines failed to do their thing to the time they touched the ground? Twenty seconds. Twenty thirty seconds. Man, yeah. oh man, that's that's just that's close to hero. That's certainly close. They were a thousand yeah, I, I, feet off I, I, the runway and about a thousand feet up. Yeah, yeah. I, I would not. Let me let me clarify. I would not begrudge someone calling him a hero. Uh, I just all. don't know all the facts right. that are involved. Right. Yeah. So we should move on well, there here. There seems to be a consensus that if he hadn't, yeah, manually changed the airplane's uh, uh, situation, that the arrival would have been much harder. Yeah. And, and and very likely much more damaging to the occupants of the airplane. Yeah. One other the airplane thing was total though. as it was. The airplane One was other thing here though is is uh, why was that fuel pressure so low? Well, you know, it it, it, it kind of made me flash back on a story that you and I had had a, an opportunity to share a little time on several years ago, and that was the mystery of the seven thirty sevens kind of going uh, uh, aerobatic for no good reason, rolling over and diving in. Yeah. And that was a total mystery. I mean, it happened a second time, uh, and then it happened to a couple of other airplanes where the pilots were in situations where they had the time and the awareness to recover. And it turned out to be this completely, uh, what's the word I want, aberrational, an, an anomalous function of the rudder control. Right. 
Right. And not something that the data, sh- you know, the data showed that there was a command one way and, they, and, and the rudder moved another. It was another case where the flight data recorder uh, was the saving grace there. Otherwise, somebody would have said, ah, the crew must have screwed up because there wouldn't have been any record. Yeah. Moving yeah. along. Okay. Moving along. I should point out to our listeners that uh, uh, occasionally on this podcast, well, sadly more than occasionally, um, but uh, sometimes Dave's sound quality is not as crystal clear as we'd like it to be. And we've spent a lot of time behind the scenes trying to figure this out, and Dave has done all the right things in terms of making sure his computer's working right and getting a good microphone and all that kind of good stuff. And uh, it still happens from time to time, and today is a particularly uh, uh, good example. Of, uh, we're, although we hear you fine, David, um, you're not as crystal clear as we'd like you to be um, and uh, as near as we can tell it has to do with Dave's internet connection being um, his internet service provider not providing great internet service internet service yeah, yeah. Um, but as near as I understand you have the best one that's available to you so uh, we have to just kind of deal with it and kind of move everything on everything else is so much slower that's right well, so our apologies yeah. to our listeners for Dave not being quite as crystal clear yeah. but uh, that's the situation and if there's any <laughs> listeners out there who understand this stuff and understand how to optimize Skype or whatever we'd love some advice on this because um it's uh it's something that's kind of been we've been struggling with but it's uh, a pain in the microphone try as we might we've done everything we can to, to to try to figure all this out but something just something about this just pisses us off that's right that's right so so uh, this is no joke yes and moving on i want oh, to yeah, say that, I see uh, I'm looking at a little meter here that says that we're not functioning at near the speed we should be. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. And then final comment I have here is that uh, long-time listeners of this podcast will know that that Jeb has to fly seven- and eight-hour legs. Otherwise, how would he get a full night's sleep? That's right. That's exactly exactly right. David, you put this on the list. You put reality show, IFR training, and real stuff, and then then a link that's sort of broken. So tell us what that's all about. This is on you, dude. Oh no problem. It was a what was Let's it? An, it an Aero News uh, uh, podcast of some sort. Yeah, uh, their uh, their CFI uh, voice. Uh, I believe his name's Bob Miller. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Very sharp, very sharp guy. Uh-huh. Uh huh. In his most recent uh, audio cast on Aero News, was talking about the reality that if when you earn your instrument rating. All you do is hood time in the daytime and no real IFR. That you really have just basically gotten the the license to learn to be an instrument pilot, which yeah. is what my check airman told me the night that I passed my check right. You got a license. You're not an instrument pilot yet, but you'll become one if you go out and use it. And he was right. But I'd actually done, I don't know, almost two thirds of my instrument training at night. And did my cross countries in actual, and I got to agree that getting out and actually training and real stuff oh, is such such of such greater value mm-hmm. hour by hour than this stuff of going out and putting a hood on on in the yeah. daytime in particular. Uh, putting a hood on at night is a lot closer to like flying and the real stuff. Because mm-hmm. you don't see anything. There's yeah, no shadows. There's no reference lines. You can't look at the, the 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 panel and say, "Oh, wow, the shadows on the knobs are going from this direction to that direction." Right. So I know I'm kind of headed this way. It ain't there. Uh, and it, you know, it it flashed to me. The, the FAA doesn't let you simulate learning night flying 
to get your night endorsement on your private pilot's license. Because that's what we're getting the instrument ticket for anyway, is to go out and go through those layers and back down through those layers that are the uh, barrier to the VFR pilot, you know, what, 80% of the time maybe? Yep. The really, really, truly ugly stuff that nobody likes to do and is no fun is really a minority, and we don't really go looking for it. It just kind of, you know, it's there sometimes, and it's nice to be able to deal with it. But the rest of the time, it's fairly pretty benign stuff that we need an instrument rating to go through. So why not get out in some nice, benign, I can't see squat stuff <laughs> when we're doing instrument training? <laughs> that's that's yet uh, another thing from the AIM. That's another one of those technical terms. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the funny thing is that I've, I've heard instructors kind of say, oh, they don't like to do that. That's like, are you out of your freaking mind? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. there, there is nothing more useful to me than, the, you know, than actually kind of... Uh, breaking yourself in and instrument conditions while you got a CFI as opposed to you do the instrument training under the hood in relatively easy weather, decent weather. Uh, you pass your check ride, which is no cakewalk, not here to say that it is. And then finding yourself having to hand fly the airplane and the real stuff for the first time a few weeks later and going, whew. I didn't know it was going to be like this. Mm, yeah. This isn't yeah. anything like all those day trips that I took. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was talking with a, um, a hangar buddy of mine um, last weekend, actually. Uh, we were talking about a flight that we had made together recently and um, talking generally about, you know, just going out and getting IFR practice. And uh, both of us kind of relating stories. You know, there was, a, there was an occasion, I don't know how many years ago it's been, but there was this cloud layer over the Mid-Atlantic. Um, bases were, you know, five or six, eight hundred feet, something like that, and tops were like two thousand feet. And I was like, "Cool, let's go yeah. aviate." Yay! Uh, got got an airplane, and and when I was this before I owned mine, and and uh, flew down to Richmond, and and um, started getting vectored for the approach. And said, this will be multiple ILS approaches, and he says, "What do you want to do?" I says, "I want to do multiple ILS approaches." He says, "Perfect <laughs> day for practice." And he says, "Oh, okay, fine." And I was by myself, you know, just. Um, I shot like three or four and, and uh, said, all right, I've had enough fun and, and uh, flew, well, you, flew you know, my we, scrawny we, butt home. And, and uh, Regulars have heard us talk about the breakfast in Ponca City, Oklahoma, first yeah. Saturday of the month, rain or shine. I used to love going out to home field at Augusta on a day when I knew it was going to take an ILS approach to have breakfast in Ponca City. First off, there were a lot fewer people in line. Yeah, we got on the ground. <laughs> that's that's the reason to get your IFR ticket. More pancakes yeah, sec- for me, right? That's right. Second, when you went back for seconds, there was nobody in line. <laughs> uh, it was really good practice because it was real IFR. Uh, we did it when we did it one Saturday when folks were sitting around waiting for it to go VFR, which it was gonna about an hour hence it was going to go vfr you could see it on the on the satellite picture and there were there was even a, an instrument pilot sitting in the lounge at augusta waiting for it to go vfr because he thought flying ifr to go to breakfast was how do you put it a little frivolous hmm. and i'm like no man it's called currency mm-hmm. yep you know, I got to do six. I got to do six in, in six months. Well, what better way to do one of the six than to go down here for breakfast? And by God, if it's overcast and rainy and pissy and, and ugly like it is this Saturday next month, 
I'm going to go again, except I may shoot the mist and come back so I can get a second approach before breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Congeniality. That's right. That's right. So... Uh, yeah, training in the real stuff. Really get out there and use it. I'm, I should, I can't talk, but I listen to you guys, and I'm, I'm a believer. I'm, one of these days, I'm going to start that training. But uh, anyways, ne- next story here. I'm, I've changed the order of the stories just slightly. Uh, and, uh, oh, so, refresh. So let's see now. Um, when I first read this headline, I'm not kidding. For a moment or two, I thought this is actually a story from The Onion. All right, because the, it's <laughs> because this is just such. A, you know. All right. So the headline is uh, DOT Department of Transportation's Peters wants FAA and airlines to communicate better, and I'm thinking. <laughs> Yeah, come on, they're practically in bed <laughs> together. How, how, much, how much better could they communicate? Of course, what this particular story is talking about is uh, all this confusion about the uh, the maintenance. Somebody's not scrubs. getting kissed in the morning. Yeah, and uh, you know, I don't know if we want to talk at all about what all that snafu with all the American Airlines flights, but this is, if nothing else, a lead into this. This, this is just dumb because all this is going to do is further <laughs> annoy. If I could put it in a politically correct fashion, further annoy the airlines and especially the maintenance personnel. Talking about this kind of shinola um, uh, (laughs) publicly is is just dumb. You know, Uh we're getting close to a a point where nobody's going to want to know what shinola means because nobody polishes their shoes anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the lead into the actual story is that it's uh, this you know with with FAA reauthorization stumbling and falling and probably being dead for a while now um, the uh, ATA the airlines have kind of reaffirmed or brought re brought back to life all of their campaign about how bad we GA people are and and uh, I know. know all those terrible terrible private aircraft that didn't lose their luggage and didn't have their flights delayed to go into the Kentucky Derby. All those terrible, terrible private aircraft that loaded up Louisville International and Bowman Field and uh, Juliet Victory Yankee over in my hometown in Indiana. You know, I really feel for the airlines having to suffer with that loss of revenue, even though their flights were full anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about full. Let's talk about an air transport association that's full of it. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah well there's not, another not to put too fine a, not to put a, put too fine a point on it because when the ends are rounded it goes out much easier but uh uh this is just more self-serving hollow baseless inaccurate crap yeah yeah well there's another one that came out today i don't know if you guys saw it or not there's in a big press release again from sec peters uh, about how the uh, uh, government is going to again open up for the Memorial Day weekend air travelers yeah, right. the military airspace going to going to open it up for all the airlines and I'm like well that'll fix it yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that'll, that's what they need that that'll fix everything right there yeah you know I, I sometimes think that DOT is something akin to a uh, uh, a Tai Chi instructor. How's that? Yeah. Well, they always look like they're moving. <laughs> I see. Okay. But they never really hit anything. Yeah. So it's all just an exercise. And Tai Chi is supposed to be great exercise. So if this is Tai Chi 
for the political mouth of DOT. DOT must be approaching a peak of physical fitness. (laughs) So anyways, I don't think that the FAA and the airlines managing to communicate is really the big problem here. They're they're communicating just fine. Well, there's, uh, you know, recently, you know, the FAA said, well, they were going to create a new way of tracking the and, and, and making sure that maintenance inspectors were doing their jobs and, and, and keeping tabs of what the maintenance inspectors were keeping tabs on. And it's like, you know, you really didn't have to do that. All you had to do was pay attention to the way that was reinvented the last time somebody thought that it needed to be reinvented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which really didn't require reinvention then, just paying attention to the way they did it before. So, you know, uh, at, at some point here, at some point here, the whole system is going to be like a, uh, a, a supernova. It's going to collapse on itself, and there's going to be gridlock between tracons and departure points and arrival points, and the computer is going to say, oh, how? Please rescue me. Right, right. So, That's right. anyways. So, I'm staying here. I've been, I've been here in Philadelphia for a week now, and... Uh, did you um, lick the crack of liberty? No, no, I didn't get a chance to do that. I'll have to try. I, it's been here for 225 years. I figure it'll be here a couple more, so yeah. I can. I'll have another chance. Um, the air, the hotel I'm staying at. I, I've noticed many times as I'm walking from the hotel out to the car that uh, a, a great number of really cool-looking business jets flying right overhead, clearly on final approach. And so I went and checked uh, the map and discovered that. Uh, What's known as the uh, Northeast Philadelphia Airport is about uh, two, three miles from here, and we're obviously right under Long Final. Um, and uh, sadly, I didn't get a chance to get over there. I would have loved to get over and kind of check it out. But uh, um, as I mentioned earlier, the weather has been really gusty and squally and, and weird for the last couple of days. And I returned from our meetings this afternoon, turned on the TV to discover, sadly, that uh, that there was a, a, a two fatality airplane crash out of that airport this afternoon. A uh, oh man! Apparently, a uh, uh, it's uh, a trainer, a, an instructor, and tr- and uh, private pilot trainee uh, were uh, were uh, doing touch and goes, uh, doing the pattern apparently, and. Uh, and made a, a earlier than usual turn at the request of ATC. Made an earlier than usual turn uh, to crosswind, and and this is where it gets a little pretty vague. But it's speculated that uh, they just made the turn too tight or too whatever, and stalled and spun. And uh, they were only a few hundred feet up at the time, and and just went in and hit a hit a parking lot a, a ways away from the airport, um, and both were killed instantly. Um, sad, sad story, um, and uh, our hearts, you know, go out to these folks. The the thing that I wanted to mention about this is that uh, one of the so I'm watching the news story uh, and uh, and then reading the, uh, the 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 first reports on the web, and a couple of people speculated that 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 they they might have gotten themselves into trouble because of the the gusty winds. Um, and then someone else said, no, probably not. It was probably just something a little more mundane than that. My question for you is, and this kind of goes back to, I remember back in the early, my early days of flying, this was sort of a big debate, um, is whether or not gusty winds and, you know, if you have a choice of turning left or right into the wind or against the wind, which way makes more sense? And, you know, do you guys have any thought? Oh, yeah, really? Okay. What do you, what, what's the uh. deal? I mean, you, oh, I mean, how? What? Let me, let me. Let's. All right, let's before we get into the kind of urban legend of it all. All right. Um, how should you operate differently in an environment that has very gusty winds, particularly when you're close to the ground? 
I like to add a little margin to the speed that I'm flying for whatever phase of flight I'm in. If I'm climbing out, uh, probably not going to try to execute a max climb that pushes me up near a stall. Uh, where you know a, a change in the gust load could you know take me from being in a in a positive wind to a slightly negative wind and ergo below stall speed at that angle of attack and into something seriously uh, challenging. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, too many turning into the wind, turning away from the wind. Uh, the patterns kind of dictate that, and we have to learn to live with those. Uh, it, regardless, because you can't always choose which way you're going to do it at the destination airports. Right. And then it's just a matter of managing the airspeed appropriate for the airplane. And that means uh, watching the needle a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't well, depend on ground reference for that because for conditions also. And, uh, that's what I mean. Is, yeah. You, yeah. The, the rule of thumb in, in gusty conditions is adding to your target airspeed. Uh, and generally, we're thinking about landings here, um, as opposed to initial climb or, or something like that. What but is that? One point three. One point three VSO. But generally, we're talking about adding half of the gust value to okay. your uh, target approach speed. One point three VSO for a normal approach. One point two VSO for a short field approach. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, then you add half the gust value. That's again the the basic rules of thumb. Um, some people will, you know, okay, I'll add half, half the gust value, and I'll add uh, eh, a couple more knots for mom and a couple more knots for the girlfriend and a couple more knots for the guys down at Hank's Bar and Grill. And before you know baby it, baby and one more yeah, for before road. you know it, they've touched down, they've smoked the brakes, they've left skid marks off the end of the far end of the runway. Yeah, and uh, they're in, they're out in the weeds in the in the cornfield, wondering what the heck happened. Um. I don't know anything about this this uh, very sad accident today in, in, at uh, P&E. Um, <clears throat> well, it bears pointing out that this, you know, there doesn't appear to have been any mechanical malfunction with the airplane. It is, to me, kind of speculative and a little premature. I mean, it always helps to have somebody look at the airplane and find out that, yeah, the engine was running on impact. Yeah, the flight controls were intact. If we're saying, well, we have no indication of a mechanical problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, day of is kind of a tough time to be concluding things. Yeah, yeah. it is. So uh, it, it, it's we can we can talk about you know landing and, and taking off in gusty conditions. Um, we probably shouldn't be talking about that specific accident. That's uh, right. No, and and, and, and uh, I, it just you know it was the yeah. question that well, that, spot, that made me think. And uh, yeah. one of the, one of the, one of my favorite things used to be and still is when I have regular access to an airplane is to go out on days that aren't particularly recreational. You know, it's not really going to be fun to go out and do an hour's worth of touch and goes today, but it is going to be much better training for the day when I come in from an 800-mile cross-country, and this is the kind of garbage that I'm going to face. Right. Yeah. As opposed to taking the airplane out on the, oh, isn't it wonderful, it's smooth as glass today days, and say, yep, that's good preparation for the real stuff, because like we were talking with instrument training a while ago, um, it's so much better for you it's so much more uh 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 
confidence building, competence building to go out on a day when it's really not particularly easy or fun and put in some touch and goes and gusts or crosswinds when it doesn't matter. I'm not saying going out there, you know, when it's 40 cross to the runway or when there's, you know, a, fr- a front coming through and you got a 30 knot gust factor. But if it's blowing steady 20 and gusting to the high 20s or 30s and within a few degrees of the runway, 15, 20, 30, that's a really good day to go out and practice the kind of control you got to maintain for that day when you're coming back from someplace. And that's what it is. Yeah. And you're not going to sit it out someplace 100 miles away saying, well, I'll wait a few days for it to get like a normal fly. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't practice that stuff once in a while, it's a lot more stressful. Yeah. Sure. Well, t- today around here would have been a, a hot stuff day to practice crosswinds at most of the airports around here because it's been uh, northeast to east-southeast almost all day here. Yeah. And there's not many airports here with crosswind runways for that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I try and know, do the yeah, Bob Hoover land on one wheel thing, you know, and kind of like, you know. Anyway. There you go. And yeah. we talked about crosswinds before, uh, you know, the proper technique. The proper technique is the one that works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's right. The proper technique is the one after which you can use the airplane again. That's right. That's, That's right. right. So, anyways. Well, here we go. Here's yet another reason to move to Florida. Uh, <laughs> you mean there was a reason to begin with? Yeah. Well, no. There's, yeah. Pl- there's apparently plenty of reasons. The FAA has I'm reported. Shocked. Let me see if I can find the actual story here. Where is it here? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. T- uh, Tamiami. Yeah. So, so the FAA has announced <laughs> some reports you go to. They warn you about, uh, you know, oh, uh, they warn you this. about t- towers yeah. or cranes on short final. They warn you about birds now, you in know, the area. Here's a product one, idea for general aviation. This airport, they're warning Kevlar. you about. Insulation for the inside of your airplane. They're warning you to watch out for gunfire while flying around the airport. This is just just a story. You're down there, Jeb. Man. Do you know anything more about this than we do? I don't know anything about this. I, I just just saw it literally today, uh, and I'll kind of summarize it. Um, FAA is uh, the story goes on. The FAA recently took the unusual and disturbing, and it is unusual and, and a little bit disturbing. More than a little disturbing. Step of issuing a notice to airmen. For the Tamiami um, Kendall Executive Airport, Tango Mike Bravo, uh, near Miami, after bullet holes were found in the fuselages of two aircraft based there. Um, no one knows uh, how these aircraft got hit by bullet holes. I would kind of like to see the bullet holes myself, to be honest with you, make sure that they are bullet holes. Um, they don't know if, for example, there's someone near the airport who is who is an anti-airport activist who is shooting at these at these airplanes. Um, yeah, I. Both airplanes apparently are at a flight school, based at a flight school there at, uh, at Tamiami. Uh, bullet holes were found over a two-month period, according to a local CBS station. Um, the FBI um, uh, issued the notum following an investigation by the local uh, police department that so far has failed to result in any arrests. Uh, don't know if it was byproduct of another criminal activity. Uh, or as as uh, ANN uh, notes, a rabid NIMBY. Uh, NIMBY stands for not in my backyard, yeah. uh, taking matters into their own hands. Um, <clears throat> kind of curious. I, I'd be interested in learning more about where those two specific airplanes have been operated. 
um, uh, as, as urbanized as parts of Florida are, uh, other parts of it are very, very rural, and you don't know uh, what some people might be doing, uh, what crops, shall we say, they might be growing uh, on their property. That, uh, that, that, that's something we experienced yeah. years ago, hang gliding in some of the areas that I used to, to prowl in Tennessee. And it wasn't always what they were growing. Sometimes it was what they were uh, making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in the back in those mountains. Yeah, and we had a couple of pilots over the span of a couple of years uh, mention that they heard something whistle by, then <laughs> heard a then heard a pop, <laughs> and uh, I'm laughing. You know, it's kind of like it's not funny. They, uh. they heard a whistle and another pop, and kind of like decided that that wasn't very friendly place. And and we had one guy come back. With a uh, uh, almost a fifty caliber diameter hole in a two inch leading edge tube, hmm. and we were marveling pretty... at how well built that how well built that glider was. That part of the tube, that part of the leading edge, was double sleeved, and uh, we figured that's the only reason why that thing held together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was also interesting that. Somebody took a look at it and, and gave the opinion that it was a round ball bullet hole. That's cool. Yeah, that's yeah, that's and, interesting. That, that well, the uh, pilot said he saw a big puff of smoke, which kind of you know makes me think of a black powder rifle muzzle loader. Exactly. <laughs> a friend of mine. Bingo. Uh, a friend of mine uh, once had uh, for a period of time uh, a what what we believed to be a bullet hole in the top skin of his right wing and uh um, but not the bottom it didn't go all the way through and i and i don't know the whole story whether or not they they retrieved the sh- the the whatever the Dude, give me a drill let's get into that wing you know but they I apparently concluded say, that there was nothing really rattling weird. around her and and the best they could figure is um this was in the san jose california area which was is notorious for, this was in the summertime they first discovered it um, that area was notorious around the fourth of July for people firing guns into the air and uh, and the best we could figure was that by just sheer dumb bad luck all right one of these uh, bullets came down right on his wing and uh, and punctured the top of the wing and uh, you know, and and he flew with it yeah, that way for a little while, and then, goes then up, must come down. Yeah. <laughs> Although oddly, I was watching MythBusters on TV just last night, and they were they were talking about the myth of whether or not a, a bullet returning from the sky can can do damage, and uh, uh, it's and a trajectory thing. What was their conclusion? The, uh, their conclusion was well, th- that's that. Uh, Dave's actually makes an interesting point. Um, the conclusion was that if the bullet was sort of making the proper arc, it can maintain its, um, you know, its orientation, its spin, and thus do some good, some serious damage, including killing people. But if it's fired straight up in the air and kind of pauses up there and then just kind of falls down, um, it will yeah. tumble. And in in tumbling, it will reach terminal velocity, um, which though is is fast enough to well, hurt you, um, is probably not fast enough to uh, to punch a hole in a in a in a metal skin wing. So what yeah, about, even what even if a, it were to come down, kind of oriented, it's about, never going to achieve in free fall. Yeah, the velocity that it achieved coming out of the muzzle of the weapon. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, okay, let's let's back up though. Okay, so it's not going to punch through. Let's say it goes straight up and it comes straight down, and it tumbles, it loses its its uh, twist and and uh, reaches terminal velocity on the way down, and it doesn't have nearly the mass um, coming down that it did going up. I accept that, but how much mass does it have? And well, it has it, the same well, mass well, well, both directions. Well, 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 hey, Dave, Dave, Dave. While it may not have the mass to go through an aluminum-skinned airplane, does it have a mass to go through, you know, a fairly thin-skinned human? Well, and that's what they were talking about on MythBusters. They uh, there are there are documented cases where uh, guns fired from a distance have have killed people, uh, but that's that's the more gentle arc. Um, the MythBusters guys actually demonstrated this by yeah. simulating a, fa- a shot straight up in the air and then straight back down into the head of a dead pig. Um, and and concluded that uh, uh, and they did a couple of different sized bullets um, at terminal velocity would not would just barely even pu- uh, break the skin um, okay. and give you a good welt but uh, not not even break the skin of the pig's head which may or may yeah. not be like a human's head uh, or may maybe like some humans' heads but not others <laughs> because we're humans yeah all right physiological that's right <laughs> so anyways um, yet another reason to move to uh, Florida gunfire. Anyways. Yes. And get shot at. Yeah. Why not? That's right. Absolutely. David, you put a really cool post. You were mentioning earlier that you've been in the forums yesterday, last night, or today, or whenever it was, and, and you did a bunch of posts. One of them really caught my attention, which had to do with bargain birds. You, uh, This is something we talked about a long time ago, and we never really followed through on it. And then you put up a, a really interesting list of, of inexpensive aircraft. Can you, uh, for people who don't go into the forums, can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? And, um... Sure. Uh well, we had this little conversation on a podcast, I don't know, months ago, last year, yeah, yeah, uh, where I kind of lost, I, I, I kind of lost patience with this, this uh, with, with, with the belief that the only way to get into aviation, learn to fly, get an airplane is to spend serious six figures. Yeah. And to debunk this whole idea, I read into the record uh, about a dozen airplanes that were under forty thousand. Several of the the majority of which were under thirty, a few of which were under twenty. And I got a, a, a kind of more than an acquaintance, but short of a good friend here in town, who was kind of going through the same thing. He's got his he's, he's got his ticket. He's got a private pilot's license. He's interested in being involved in the community. Matter of fact, he's already fallen in with bad people and uh, uh, thinks that this is something that he wants to be involved in, you know, as a participant, as a user, as part of his lifestyle. And everybody he's talked to, oh, man, what you need is this or that or the other thing. And every time he looks at what they're talking about, they're talking 95000 100000 150000 175000 $200,000. And one guy said, you know, if you're interested, I'll partner with you on a a, a – a, High, high six-figure airplane, seven hundred thousand-dollar airplane, and my friend does not have anything near those kind of resources. Right. So I stumbled across a couple of these things in the interim, and foolishly didn't save the links. But I came across ads for real airplanes, really for sale in reasonable condition. That you know, just kind of put to 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 uh, uh, test the idea that there's no inexpensive way into this. And one of them was a twenty-two thousand dollar 
Cherokee 140. Now, admittedly, it was not an IFR-equipped airplane, but equipping it for IFR would would actually be a very small expense because it already had the basic gyros. Uh, $22,000 for a little four-place airplane that will push you across the country at 110, 115 miles an hour on a good day. And believe me, compared to driving, even compared to the airlines, on trips out to 500 miles or so, that 100 miles an hour is faster than booking on on a on a common carrier. Well, while, while we're talking here, I just went ahead and loaded up the um, tradeofplane.com homepage. Here's a, a Cessna 150, 1976. This is this is shall we say oh, that's a, in the airplane I try learn to fly. That's okay. an American Centennial model yeah. too. 76 model Cessna 150, 900 cents major overhaul, very nice, always hangered, less than $19,000. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, I found a four place Cherokee for 22. Uh, Jiminy, now I'm going to have to look at the link because uh, there was also, I believe, an Aronka in there for about. 18. Yeah, well, no, you had a, and, you had a, skip, a skipper for 18.8. And a skipper for 18, right. A beach skipper, which beach didn't have very much success with this little airplane, but it's actually a lovely little airplane. It is. Uh, it's fairly roomy. Uh, they're fairly modern. There's a little luggage space behind them. Uh, it's the same engine as in the Piper Tomahawk and the Cessna 152. Uh, so that, you know, engine's always going to be easy. They, they built fewer than 400 of them. And there are guys out there that have found them with really good, serious instrument equipment in them because Beach Aero Clubs, that was their flight school and sales network operation back in the 70s and 80s. Beach Aero Clubs put these airplanes to work as primary and instrument trainers because six gallons an hour, you know, wide open is so much easier to, you know, on, on the wildlife for instrument training than putting them in a Bonanza or a Sierra at the same time. So there was an 18,800 skipper uh, and then a 58 Piper Comanche 180. And it's not on here because of my sentimentality. It's on here because it was, hands down, the most speed for the dollar, the most speed for the dollar. That I found in this last week, twenty-five thousand dollars for a fifty-eight Piper Comanche. Yeah. Now it doesn't have modern radios. It doesn't have an IFR GPS, but it will still get you and Mama and a couple of small kids and luggage down the road at 140, 145, 150 miles an hour on a good day, uh-huh. and is eminently, eminently improvable into a 160-mile-an-hour airplane with all the comforts and all the bells and whistles you could ever want and would ever get on a new airplane. Well, here's a, here's you're a, not going to have anywhere near a new airplane in it, and you're going to be going as fast. Yeah. here's If you can afford um, a high-end SUV, if you can afford a high-end luxury sedan, okay, here is a Piper... Cherokee 180. This is a 1973 model. Ooh. 450 hours since new engine. Ooh. IFR equipped. Um, new Mexico airplane for 47.5, and that's the asking price. Yeah. That's not what you'll pay for it. 
Uh, here's a uh, Bonanza for sixty two nine. That's a little bit overpriced. I'm not going to get into that. Here's a Warrior, seventy seven Warrior. Uh, again, under fifty grand. Yeah. Um, and these are uh, um, you know IFR equipped uh, four place airplanes. These are tr- these are you're getting into cross country airplanes now. These are traveling airplanes. Yeah. As opposed to let's say a forty one Taylor craft here that's on the um, uh, air, uh, uh, trader plane website twenty thousand um, oh, dollars. That's, that's got zero. That's lovely. Zero since wow. Wait a second here. Zero since major overhaul. A thousand total time airframe, uh, electric starter and generator, new fabric. Um, it's it's out of annual, um, but that's okay. Twenty grand, man. That's that's a good deal. Yeah, you know, that's a good deal. And a T craft is a wonderful, yeah, wonderful basic airplane. Uh, and if it's got electric system and electric yeah. start, it's more yeah. than a basic T craft. Yeah, uh, buddy of mine flies a a, a T craft that has to be hand propped because uh-huh. uh, I held the tail for him Saturday morning uh, after we did our Saturday afternoon after we did the podcast. Went to a little private get-together on a private strip uh, where there were a couple of dozen private planes that showed up, and one of them was my skydiving buddy. He jumps with the uh, uh, with the team that opens the air show at Oshkosh every year. And uh, to get to Oshkosh, he flies his old no-electric system, Taylor Craft, from Wichita to Oshkosh. Hmm. Uh, he takes a day and a half and has a great time. He camps uh-huh. along the way. Uh, it's not luxurious, but you know what? He gets there in about the same time driving would take and has a much greater, you know, has much more fun doing it. And actually, I think burns less gas. Yeah. And Champ, not only Champ Guy, he talks on, in the forums a lot about long distance flights he does. Um, um, your old buddy and, and uh, someone I've met a couple times, uh, Joe Champagne, uh, flies his Champ up to Oshkosh from where? From like Texas or something like that, right? Where's he? Oh, he flies, he flies his little, uh, he's got a little Luscom. Uh, he used to have a Champ. Maybe, he, maybe he's traded airplanes. He did, he did used to have a Champ. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where does he fly up he, from? He, it's a quite a ways, right? He, it's, it's over in uh, southeast Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah, it's farther from here, and it's a good pull from here. So these little airplanes not only are, are, are uh, you know, great, I don't know, collectibles well, the, or whatever. The Jer- but Jerry Griggs, who's a Czech airman for the FAA here for a long time and corporate instructor and ferry pilot, did all sorts of stuff. Jerry gave me my uh, instrument check ride. But we met at Oshkosh years ago uh, when I was shooting for the show daily up there in the 90s, early 90s. I found him... Under the wing of his Armonka C3, this is a 40-horsepower two-seater that will maybe do 65. And he was asleep under the wing with his head propped up on the tire when I took his picture. It was right in the middle of the air show. All noise and smoke, and this guy's crashed out. And for some reason, he opened his eyes and raised his head up and said, who are you taking pictures for? And I said, who? And asked him his name, and he told me, where are you from? Wichita. I said, how long did it take you to get up here? Two and a half days. <laughs> He's got about two and a half hours of fuel. He goes about 70 miles an hour. Yeah. See, that's uh, my kind of but, flying. You're the, you guys are the... 
you know, but uh, I like that kind of stuff. That's uh, Oh, yeah, it's great stuff. And, so there's and, a lot and, of great airplanes out there that are very affordable, and, uh, you know, we should try and keep talking about these things and calling out. Here's a 66 uh, Skyhawk, 36 grand. There you go. There you go. Uh, if, again, if you can afford a high-end SUV, and nowadays I'm not sure anybody. Well, if, if you look at the gas. if you look at the forums where I do this, this is if you can afford an economy car. Yeah. The airplanes that that are the ones that I put up there, and I promise as I come across more of these downstream, I will save more information. So if anybody's interested, they got a place to go look. That's right. Yeah. Go into forums. Uh, when I came across these, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I I, I guess I just had the uh, the button pushed one too many times, and I said, okay, uh, let's do something here. That's right. That's right. Uh, so- and and these aren't the end of the world airplanes. Aren't necessarily where you want to stay. For some guys, it's all they're ever going to want. For other guys, it's a time builder. But that's the key. Everything you learn flying airplanes like these little inexpensive ones is directly applicable as you move up to bigger, faster, if you choose to make up to bigger, faster. And they're they're just great time builders. That's right. So check out the forums. And you meet neat people. That's right. Check out the forums uh, in the section on uh, called Aircraft Ownership. There's now a thread called Bargain Birds, and uh, Dave and, and, and the rest of us will be po- – and, and listeners, post uh, if you know of an airplane, and maybe we'll even allow people to break the rule here. If you're selling your own airplane that's uh, a relatively you know low-cost aircraft, put it in there as well, and uh, we'll, we'll try and collect up some examples here. we got to move on. We're, we're, we're kind of yeah, – reaching the end of our Oh, yeah, we're pushing here. the clock. Sorry so, about that, uh, I got a bunch of I got a bunch of buddies here that are that – are, I'm overdue to meet them for beer so man we gotta we gotta wrap this up oh man shout outs shout outs let's see now i've got one here um discovered today that uh, our friends over at eaa have uh, have uh, posted all of the back issues of sport aviation magazine online yeah on that's website. very cool that is that is quite a collection of information there is just i mean you just talk about a treasure trove um they've been doing oh, that absolutely for a long time now and if all those articles are there that's just incredibly valuable to to people who are building airplanes who are looking to read about history, to do restorations, to that build new airplanes. That is a huge project. Yeah, so that's not, awesome. Not a and, small uh, undertaking. I only so. found out about it this afternoon, so I haven't had a chance to explore it. Um, uh, but uh, I'm looking forward to digging in and, and learning a little bit more about that. So go to uh, ea.org to find uh, the uh, back issues of Sport Aviation magazine. David, uh, you were going to tell us a little bit about uh, one of our favorite uh, grass fields. What are they up to these days? Oh, we talking about uh, Lee Bottom? Yeah. Okay. Well, Lee Bottom. They do every, an every uh, Sunday thing. Is that what they do? Well, three three Sundays during the summer. Ah, okay. Uh, they have a they have a ice cream social fly in. Uh, they make milkshakes for the people who fly in out of homemade ice cream. I believe it is sinful Sundays at at Lee Bottom in Indiana. The designator is sixty four I sixty four India. Uh, the link will be on the uh, on on the uh, show notes webpage. Uh, Lee Bottom is this really neat four thousand foot grass strip on a little dog leg on the banks of the Ohio River uh, near Hanover, Indiana. It's about fifty miles upriver from my hometown. Uh, beautiful little place. They got a cabin. Uh, they people can fly in and camp uh they have a big event 
every fall uh antique cars tail wheels and ragwing fly in kind of thing uh you check it out through the link but for anybody that's looking for something to do during the summer june july and august they have their sinful sunday fly-ins where the 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 volunteers there the folks that run the airport rich and his bride will be serving up uh, uh milkshakes that they hand dip out and mix up for you on the spot that's Donations great. are welcome because they don't charge for this. And apparently uh, the last couple of years that they've done this, uh, you know, they were expecting a handful of friends show up and like 60 showed up. It just kind of blossomed from there. And from the sounds of it, it's turned into the kind of thing that Ponca City is on a regular basis. That sounds great. And that's just a huge excuse to go fly on an old airplane. That's a Tail little- wheels aren't mandatory, but boy, that's the that's the theme there. Yeah. And that's a little bit more reachable for me. I may try and get down there one of these days. So uh, that's cool. Uh, it's a nice country. Any other shout-outs? You, you got beer to drink. I got beer to drink, man. So uh, That's right. Thanks to Dave. Dave. Dave Higdon, of course, is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Learn more about Dave and his work at kitplanes.com or avbuyer.com slash worldaircraftsales or aea.net, or just Google his name, and uh, you'll learn a lot about uh, his photography work and his writing. Great googly moogly. Googly moogly. Jeff Burnside is an aviation journalist, currently serving as editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and you can learn more about Jeb at jebburnside.com, aviationsafetymagazine.com, and avweb.com. Thanks, Jeb. And My pleasure. Thank you all. And I am Jack Hodgson, a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about me and my work at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Check us all out at our own website, uncontrolledairspace.com. So thank you, everyone, for joining us this evening in the virtual hangar. And so enough talking. Let's go out and fly, and we'll talk to you all again next time. 